Welcome to Cakewatch, the podcast about Brexit with me, Chris Kendall. I'm a Eurocrat. Eurocrat? A Eurocrat? Uh, no, I'm not a Eurocrat. I'm a Eurocrat. Um, but anyway, it doesn't matter. It's not important because I'm here in a strictly personal capacity. Uh, and I'm here flying solo without Steve this week again because Steve is still ill. But um, I do have a co pilot, so it's not quite solo. My co pilot is Garvin Walsh. Garvin. Hello. Garvin, um, Garvin is famous for. Being one of those people who went on Romaniacs before he came here. <laughs> Does that make me a traitor? No. I was described as such by the Telegraph, so um, you're in good company. Well, in that case, yeah. Uh, you're, you're only as much of a traitor as the rest of us. Garvin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I used to be the Tories foreign policy advisor. <laughs> and um, the short story is after that I en- um, ended up back in Brussels. I was in the Remain campaign for a bit um, and um, doing political consulting uh, after a stint in academia. And I decided to come over here, uh, though I also work in London because you can never get away from the place. Yeah. Exert some kind of gravitational pull. So, yes, so there you go. So, um, rarer than rocking horse shit, um, a Tory on the Cake Watch podcast. Well, we did have Judy Gurley, but she's not a Tory anymore. No, not anymore. I'm still a Tory. You're a card-carrying member. Do I have a membership card? That's a good question. I, I mean, I pay my subs. Really? It's not like the. Um, uh, it's, it's it's not like those um, a time when they tried to expel Neil Hamilton from the party after his scandal and found he was never a member. You know, <laughs> they didn't really. Because you know, so you know Hamilton. You know, chap, chaps don't ask whether chaps are members of the Tory party. Was he a member when he was a member of the government? No, he just never joined. <laughs> They never checked. I mean, he was a, he was a conservative MP. <laughs> it didn't really matter that he wasn't actually a member. I didn't know that. That is absolutely priceless. <laughs> I wonder if he's actually a member of UKIP now. I have no idea. And I don't really care. Uh, um, we have so much to talk about. Um, and it's really late. <laughs> So we are going to have to whiz through this, but there's a lot that we need to talk about. Um, Garvin, you and I met, um, we've known each other two or three years, three or four years? Well, less than Brexit anyway, so probably only 18 months. No, no, we've known each other longer than that. Since before Brexit, no. Did we not know after Brexit? Brexit, really? No. Oh, gosh. Feels like longer. (laughs) We first met in London when you were, um, uh, when you'd recently started up your company yeah which then was known by a different name was it was known it was known as brexit analytica why did you change your name uh, because oxford analytica <laughs> objected to the term analytica because i think what was happening is they were defending their trademark against cambridge analytica um and, and they didn't really mind um that i changed it to brexit analytics uh, because they weren't really bothered about the analytics. It was just, I think, the analytica. connection of something analytica. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, some, months, some months later, people started complaining that um, my company was called Brexit Analytics and therefore must be some kind of sub-branch of the dark arts of Cambridge Analytica. 
And you, you, you're emphatically not. Well, disappointingly, I was never paid um, um, in proportion to the dark arts that that name required. You never received a massive bond from Aaron Banks via, or rather from a foreign government via certain campaigns? No. No. So that was uh, your name. The name of your company changed to? Uh, TRD Policy. It doesn't trip off the tongue quite as easily as... No, no, it doesn't. It's designed to be as bland as possible and avoid any of these things. Uh, we will be launching products with more exciting brand names than that. But this is, this is very much the, the um, holding background company. holding company. Um, what is that, what's Google's holding company? Jigsaw or something? Alphabet. Alphabet, that's it. Jigsaw is an amazing um, clothing oh, yes. company. Um, they once ran a campaign um, with just just consisted of um, posters with "I love immigration" on them. So great, great people. I buy many suits from there. They're excellent. And I think, oh, you, I think you should get Jigsaw to sponsor this podcast now. Well, we don't take sponsors except if they're not paying. And we're not going to let Jigsaw on for free. So, <laughs> well, we've just given them a plug anyway. I should be shopping at Jigsaw. After you that. should. Okay, listen. Um, Opens phone. What are we going to talk about? Um, well, first we've got some follow-up. Uh, very quickly, um, I had a really fun discussion with Steve Analyst last week about trade. Uh, he and I, I think, really really got our nerd on and um, got deep into the weeds. Great fun for us. I hope it was fun for some of the listeners. <laughs> some of you seem to enjoy it. I'm not sure all of you did. But anyway, it was pretty good. Um, but there was, um, as I was listening back to it, I, uh, it occurred to me that there was something that we should have talked about, which is the angle of trade as an instrument of foreign policy, trade as a foreign policy tool, trade as a soft power tool, uh, where, of course, being a member of the world's richest and largest trading bloc e- economy um, and being a leading member of that who can influence the direction of, of that of, of that blocks economic policy and trade policy obviously offers a fantastic um that that's a fantastic foreign policy well tool. it is it is if you use it properly if i mean the, properly. the most recent thing of note was the uk holding up at trade negotiations with india because it didn't want to um increase the number of visas allocated to Indians. Yeah. Well, there's the classic, um, (laughs) there's the classic disconnect between the UK home office and and the UK foreign office. And and one assumes keep keep the home office away from trade policies. um, But um, my my point was that um, obviously when you take back control of your trade policy um, as, as, as one country, even if it's the fifth largest economy, for now, um, well, I, I want to get onto that actually because there's a lot of talk about the fifth largest economy, as if you know, uh, you know, ordinal numbers one, two, three, yeah. four, five, yeah. six, yeah, um, matter, mattered, yeah, or you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, rather, yeah, mattered, but they don't. What matters is the size of yeah, the economy, exactly, exactly. It's, um, it's logarithmic. You know, America and yeah. China are way bigger, and well, the EU's way, bigger. and the EU together is is way bigger. Yeah, way bigger um, than China. I mean, way, the, yeah, if the, you're, I mean, if, if you're talking about trading blocks, um, Britain outside the EU is probably also the fourth or fifth largest trading block on its own, but just way behind yeah. uh, the United States, the EU, and China. Well, as, as, as I as I said in one of my, so it doesn't matter whether it's fifth or sixth. What matters yeah. is the absolute size. Of no, these exactly. I and mean, what matters is um, w- whether you are um, setting the agenda in Geneva or not. And, and the fact of the matter is, as a Korean trade negotiator once told me, um, either you're the US 
uh, and or the EU or you're nowhere. So it doesn't matter if you're um, a, a large economy, a wealthy economy. I mean, unless you're one of the two standard setters, you might as well not bother. So, um, so anyway, in brief, yeah, the UK could, after Brexit, um, if it's outside the customs union, pursue and uh, agree trade agreements all by itself. It could do them really quickly. If it does them really quickly, the chances are it's simply um, <laughs> taking what it's given. Um, it's unlikely that the UK is going to be using trade policy in order to project or advance a values agenda, foreign policy agenda. Um, and I think that, that matters. That's, that's an important loss of influence, an important loss of a, of, of a key foreign policy tool. So when you're talking about taking back control, um, I, I don't know, losing, losing control, losing your influence into EU trade policy, for me, is a, a big negative, uh, which far outweighs any positive that you might derive from taking back your own trade policy. Well, there isn't much positive from taking back your own trade policy anyway, because everywhere else is too far away. And distance is so important to trade. Trade halves as distance doubles, um, or everything else being equal. And Britain just is physically close to Europe and far away from anything else. Yeah. It's always been the case, even in the at the height of the British Empire in the 19th and early 20th century, about 40% of British trade was with Europe. Why? Because yeah. it's close by and rich, yeah. and those are the people you trade with. And that's always going to be the case, one way or the other. What, what, what matters is whether it's um, the total amount um, of that trade and what the cost of that trade is going to be. Yeah. Uh, Brexit increases that cost, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't um, symmetrically decrease the cost no. of trade with everywhere else because that's mostly determined by the cost of going there or sending things there. Well, yeah. Look, we, let's not rehash the discussion that we had last week because um, we could, again, spend a couple of hours talking about that. What I wanted to do was segue into um, a first theme, which is um, foreign policy. Um, the UK is a foreign policy player. And the, the hook for this is... Um, um, former guest of the podcast, David Hennig, friend of ours. Uh, David Hennig um, tweeted um, this um, this thing that Jeremy Hunt said. Um, it was reported by The Guardian that um, the UK is going to gain freedom of manoeuvre, in quotes, after Brexit. But he says he hopes that the UK will be invited to take part in the EU Foreign Affairs Council meetings in a different capacity. <laughs> so well, anyway, look, I mean, I mean, I, I just, I just wonder why the EU would have the Soviet Union in its Foreign Policy Council <laughs> meetings. So look, I mean, um, uh, prima facie, this is a classic example of, of cakeism and exceptionalism. This is, this is. You, Either you're in or you're out, and, and you can't be halfway. So um, I think, look, being charitable, um, what Hunt is presumably talking about is he's hoping that whatever the future partnership will be, it will allow the UK to work closely in partnership with the EU on foreign security policy. And that's probably a, 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 a realistic... Um, that's probably a realistic uh, wish. However... The way that that's put, <laughs> able to take part in Foreign Affairs Council meetings in a different capacity. I think that that means um, he expects to be able to participate or the UK to participate in 
council formations in some so in, in, in the PSC, the Political and Security Committee, or the Foreign yep. Affairs Council itself in some capacity. And this is what I wanted to talk about. So I wanted to so this is obviously um, in, very much in my bailiwick because I, um, that's the area that I work in. So, again, speaking in a personal capacity, um, nevertheless, let me draw on my own experience and just sort of ma- ma- maybe explain a little bit to, to listeners you know, how, how, how EU foreign policy works. So you've got, since the Lisbon Treaty, you've got um, an EU foreign minister, currently Federica Mogherini, my boss, she is the high representative for the EU's common foreign and security policy, but she's also vice president of the European Commission. She wears two hats. As um, high representative of the EU's common foreign and security policy, she chairs the Foreign Affairs Council. Foreign, the CFSP, common foreign security policy, still being an area where the uh, it, it, where where it's done intergovernmentally. That's to say, it's done by consensus among the member states. It's not um, it's not part of the community pillar. It's not somewhere where the Commission can take initiatives, and there's no qualified majority voting yet. Watch this space. So, um, so she chairs those meetings of the Foreign Affairs Council, and those meetings are where the major decisions are taken. So, uh, the EU foreign policy exists where all twenty eight agree on a common position, and if they don't all agree, then there's no EU foreign policy. In other words, each member state has a veto over common. Where, 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 where were you when um, one of the previous iterations of the organisation, formerly known as Brexit Analytics, was producing a report for Charles Tannock on this exact subject, ah. on the Brexit implications of security? And what we were actually doing there is we were floating away out of a particular dilemma that um, is occurring here which is that the EU wants to be able, after Brexit, to decide foreign policy itself, um, involving its members and not non-members of the EU. Uh, The UK still wants influence in the foreign policy of its region and its continent, uh, in which it obviously has a stake and um, has um, the assets of a permanent member of the Security Council and significant military forces and all other things to contribute. The problem has always been to find a way to allow both to take place at the same time. Because the structures of the EU don't allow non-members the kind of influence the UK wants to have in the foreign policy of Europe. They allow observer status. Canada has it. A few other countries have it. Norway. Well, Um, I mean, okay, we don't want to come to that. but, but But what the UK wants is a greater level of... Um, structural, structural, systematic, structural systematic involvement in decision shaping as well as decision making, and it, in other words, it wants it wants to be able to have a heavy role that it always used to have. Yeah. And the EU says, "Well, hold on. If you wanted that, you should have stayed in the EU." Hmm. Um, and the way of squaring this circle that we proposed was to reactivate an organisation that used to exist. Um, to supplant NATO mm. in cases where the United States wasn't involved, called the Western European Union. Which got subsumed. It ironically was um, subsumed into CFSP and abolished yeah. uh, largely at British initiative on yes. the grounds that it was duplicating effort. Yes. And um, in actual fact, nobody's very keen on reviving it <laughs> because the last thing they want is, no, is another organisation. But, 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 pra- but given that the U- UK is leaving and given that ha- the UK getting the kind of influence it wants inside 
um, European Union institutions is Pache Hunt impossible. Yeah. This was a way to say, hey, it's only 60 million euros a year or dollars a year. It's not very expensive. Re-establish this thing and it can provide a forum to allow that cooperation to take place when it needs to take place in a way that uh, NATO for some reason can't But can't I mean, it, 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 you say that it was a British initiative um, and um, distaste for duplication um, that led to the dissolution of the WEU. But I mean, that's actually, it's, it's more than that. It, it's that the EU wanted once to do this itself um, and has the structures which are evolved from what we had before um, to, to then go back to somewhere that we moved on from to undo the progress of Lisbon um, would make no but sense the, at all. But, the EU can, the, but our, our view is, well, the EU can do this for itself when it's doing its own foreign policy. Absolutely, yeah, it should yeah. be done, unlike Hunt. Yeah, but but um, it, 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 it should do it in its own way, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah. But, what but, Hunt, but the EU also has to accommodate, accommodate the existence of a major non-member yeah, security okay, so, power. Right, this is what I want to talk about. So okay. It should do that in another way. Right, okay, it can so do it with so, that main power being in the EU structure. Right. So... Um, no, a number of things to say about that. Firstly, is that the UK is vastly overestimating, frankly, vastly overestimating um, its draw here. It, 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 is an, it is a foreign policy player. It is a security policy player. But in terms of CS, CFSP and CSDP, the Common Security and Defence Policy, where we have military and civilian missions around the world, it is by no means an indispensable player, and it hasn't even, as an EU member, been particularly um, eighteen. Um, so, so there's that. Sure. So, no, no. Well, let, me, well, let, me, well, well, let me let me let me let me work through my points. Here. So that that on that, I think it's um, vastly over over stating overplaying its hand. Um, but secondly. What Hunt's describing and what I've, I've heard also, if you read the UK position paper, on, on which I'm sure you have done on CFSP, um, it seems to be it seems to be thinking in terms of some kind of new, some kind of novel involvement with existing CFSP, CFSP structures. In other words, some kind of... St- right to participate in the PSA, the Political and Security Committee, which is the uh, body of civil servants that it's a bit like the co-repair, the permanent council, um, permanent committee of, uh, uh, the committee of permanent representatives, sorry gang, um, which prepares meetings of the of the council. Um, PSC, the Political and Security Committee, is made up of member state ambassadors who who finalise the agenda for the Foreign Affairs Council, which is what, dis- what takes decisions in this intergovernmental um CFSP. So um, the idea that a third country could get involved in that is um, could, could could somehow participate in those meetings is ridiculous. Uh, now I spent a number of years working on um, in, in, both in the PSC and, and on preparing the FSC meetings. I, I, I happen to know that there are a number of third country partners that have for a very long time 
tried to get some kind of foot in the door on the FAC. So you'll get, and, and I won't say which ones they are, but they consider themselves to be indispensable <laughs> def- uh, partners, defence partners. And they, um, some of them have what you described as observer status, which what that means is that we have occasional meetings with them where they come in and, and we tell them what, what, what we're doing and they say what they're doing. It's not the same thing as Some of them refer to themselves in the, in the plural in a very arch way and we may know who you're talking about yeah. there. So, um, so you'll have foreign ministers or defence ministers from those third country partners who, who will say, okay, well, look, can we come to the Foreign Affairs Council? And they'll well, no, you can't, of course not. It's, you know, it's, it's our Foreign Affairs Council. No, you're not a member. Okay, well, and can we maybe come and talk to you? Can we have some... And then they'll be like, well, tell you what, be, be a guest at lunch. Come, well, come and have breakfast with us and talk, tell us what's important to you. And, you know, it won't be an actual meeting of the Foreign Affairs Council, but it will be everybody who sits in the Foreign Affairs Council and we'll sit there with you and we'll have a we'll have a, a breakfast and we'll talk about things and then we'll go off and have our meeting. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. To, 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 to undo all of that stuff and go back to some kind of WEU sort of form, I mean, it's just, it's just completely unrealistic. It's, it's okay. No, we're talking about setting up the WEU as a separate yeah, but, I mean, institution it, for that purpose. To duplicate the work that's been done. No, no, mostly to participate in the defense of Eastern Europe in the event of America being distracted, either short-term over Trump or long-term, because it has has other um, distractions to do with China or focuses on the Pacific. That was the real purpose of this initiative. It wasn't specifically to get Britain involved in whatever European operations the EU happened to be doing that Britain didn't have an interest in. It's It's about... Keep keeping the security of Europe considered as a continent together, um, given President Trump and other longer-term trends in American security policy. Yeah, to which the response is, if you wanted to do that and you were serious about that, then why the hell are you leaving the EU? To which the response is, that's the decision the British people yeah, take. So, so it's just something we're going to have Brexit to live with, right? Brexit Which is something we're going to have. But Brexit, but this is different because it's not about the EU, it's about the physical. <laughs> but that, that's exactly physical, what infuriates over here. The, but the physical security of the continent is going to be a problem whether Britain's in the EU or not in the well, EU. Well, no, but, the, but that's why we have the EU. It's precisely for the physical defence of the, of, the, of, of the continent. That's why we've got the EU. The EU is there because... Um, certain far-sighted visionary people after the after the war said we need to find a different way of doing things, and the EU is how we're going to do it. But now not for the physical defence of the continent against external threats. It was about bringing bringing the states in the continent together so they wouldn't fight each other. Yes, again. it wasn't planned um, it, as a physical defence mechanism. Other organisations were, it, including yes, but the for w- internal threats, for yes, internal threats. Yes, including, including the WEU which was set up before the EU dates back to the Brussels Treaty in 1950. Yes. Um, well, we know that there was the defence community And the defence community which yeah. failed in 1954. Yeah. But this is part, part of a process. There were many um, efforts. And in this case, um, the d- defence of the continent anyway is principally taken care of by NATO in, in, its, in, its, mili- in its military form. But as you but just described, this is all about where Article the, 15 NATO is. But, the, but there's Article 5. Article 5. But the, <laughs> Article 5 and, and ironically, the mutual defence clause in the WEU is actually stronger than the one in Article 5. Mm. Well, uh, the WEU doesn't exist. No, it doesn't exist. But we were Anyway, we were proposing to re-establish it because... Brexit had created this particular problem, quite accepting in all other areas yeah. that so, um, this would be cake. And needless to say, um, the reaction we got in this city was very much the same. It's, we were told, you are seeking cake, 
Yes. This is just another devilish British plot to have influence in um, uh, in European security policy after Brexit, which is well, it's half true. It is, no, it's completely true. It's I mean, classic so, cake. I mean, there, 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 we do these things in the EU. What you want is to leave the EU, but still do them. It's if the EU were actually doing those things, then great. But the EU is not oh, come on. doing those things. Yeah, quite, sig- quite, sig- quite, sig- quite, sig- things. quite significantly, because Britain spent 20 years blocking the development of such things. Voila, there you go. Hello. <laughs> well, look, you know, first but, but I, I'm, I'm, but I'm not, I'm not here as a representative of the British government. I'm here <laughs> as an independent commentator and businessman. So I'm not going to defend all the decisions the British government has or has not taken over the past. It's a refreshing, uh, you know, it's a refreshing, years. it's a, fre- a refreshing alternate, um, take God. No, why why do we why do we have <laughs> why do we have pesco why do we have um ecofin why do we have schengen even we have schengen and ecofin and pesco because britain in the end didn't want complete european yeah. integration and, in these areas and that so we have all, so we have this incredibly complicated constitutional structure that isn't necessary yeah and one of the things that can happen after brexit is a return exactly. to this kind of um simple right. um direct so, Exactly. European structure. So uh, that's going to we're going to segue into another thing that we wanted to talk about, which is um, the opportunities of Brexit for the EU, <laughs> for the EU twenty seven. And so you've just neatly articulated one key uh, silver lining of Brexit, which is that it removes an irritant, it removes uh, an obstructive force, um, and allows. Uh, the EU to start moving towards simplifying all these this, this encrustation of structures and systems and processes that are there simply in order to give the UK extra vast. Uh, and in the meantime, what you've got is the UK saying, yeah, we're leaving, but we're now going to ask you to encrust even more bullshit on top of your systems in order to allow us to keep doing what we want to be doing and in order to feed us more cake. That's essentially what we're saying. So the idea that, that Jeremy Hunt has, whether it's sitting in the Foreign Affairs Council or the PSC, which is ridiculous, or it's recreating the WEU, finding some other kind of system, goes, A, squarely against the idea of Brexit, which Brexit means Brexit. If you want these things, you stay. But B, it also works against what will be seen here as one of the advance, one of the, one of the benefits of Brexit. Increasingly, I mean, I had a very interesting chat today with a colleague of mine, a Danish guy who um, I think, you know, would, would be, he, he would never describe himself as being much of a, of a federalist. He's, he's certainly not in my camp. And he, he from the sort of Scandinavian stroke Danish school of, um, of Euroscepticism, nevertheless works with institutions. And we were talking today about how the whole Brexit experience, whereas I think immediately after the before and immediately after the referendum, I think there were definitely some nerves also on this side about well, are we going to be able to rise to this challenge, or is this, or is the rock going to set in? Are we just going to embarrass ourselves by being by <laughs> playing with horse trading and compromise and fudge and so on, and, <laughs> and effectively leading to our own sort of slow decline and dissolution? And I think viewed from here, um, actually. Um, thanks in no small part to the utter incompetence of the, of the, of the, of the, of the British approach to negotiations, but also to, to really quite skillful handling by, um, by Barnier 
and his team, but also by the leadership in the commission, actually, and the council, I think they've played a blinder. And I think there's been a massive advert for the power of the EU as, as, uh, and, and, and the attractive power of the EU for its members uh, and in order to – and as – uh, a multiplier for its members, especially its smaller members, such as one with which you are intimately acquainted, Gordon. Um, so, and I say that, I mean, I, um, listeners to the podcast will not be surprised to learn that I'm not a particular friend of the European People's Party. Um, in my private life, of course, my public life, I have no politics, but in my private life, I do. Um, but the EPP, that's, the EPP is the European People's Party, which is, if you like, the um, the mainstream right of centre, small c conservative grouping in the European Parliament. And uh, Jean-Claude Juncker um, was their candidate to become commission president. He became commission president after the EPP's win in the, um, la- whenever it was, the, the, the last European elections. So honestly, they, they seem to have played, they seem to have played it very cannily, very well. Uh, and when you look, when, when you when you take a step back and you look at Brexit negotiations, you look at how Brexit's been handled and how the Commission's done it and how the UK's handled it, um, you're left feeling that um, the EU is a, the, the EU and, and, and the Commission are, are, are functioning as a very well ordered machine, whereas the UK isn't. <laughs> I'd say that's fair. There's been a um, there's been a long UK. Um, plan or strategy, at least since probably goes back to when Blair stopped being prime minister. To have a kind of multi-speed Europe with Britain somewhere in an outer ring and to a certain extent leading the outer ring. And this outer ring was to be composed of the UK, some of the Nordic countries, maybe some of the Eastern countries. Um, but it's actually a very incoherent block. I was going to say, I mean, you say a strategy. That, that Surely that overstates it. And is it some ill-formed wish on the no, part was, of certain... There was, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was more of an effort to was there? pursue well, They screwed that up completely. But <laughs> it, it, trouble, the trouble with the... I mean, even if they hadn't Brexited, and the trouble with that strategy is that the reason the Nordic countries and the East, Eastern European countries want to be out of the main structures are contradictory. As far as the Nordics are concerned, the rule of law in... South and Central Europe isn't strong enough, yeah. and as far as Orbán and Kaczynski are concerned, it's far too strong. Yeah. So they can't agree on an, they can't agree on a on a strategy other than to block things. Yeah. And when the UK is gone, so they're no longer in a position to kind of lead that group, yeah. it falls apart. Yeah. So that's not that's not going to work, and never is going to work. And it's not what Macron means by the out, it's not what Macron means by the out outside yeah. ring of uh, European integration either. Yeah. <laughs> So the, and the UK has been trying a bit to to pursue that in its Brexit negotiations, but there are well, two there are two there are two big mistakes it's made um, in it, in its negotiations. One is to see to see the Article Fifty two two, two big ones. Uh, everything else here pales into insignificance. It it sees the uh, negotiations as an extension of the renegotiation. And the objective of that renegotiation is to have a three freedom single market with the freedom of goods, services, and capital, but not the free movement of people. Yeah. 
Uh, the second thing is it thinks it's dealing with an intergovernmental yeah. organization. Yeah. And that's ironic because an intergovernmental organization wouldn't be the kind of thing yeah. they wanted to leave. Yeah. They just don't understand supranationalism. Yeah, exactly. And their failure to understand supranationalism... It's, willful. it's a willful ignorance, it's, isn't it? It's, 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 it you want, they, they, they believe it because they want to believe it. Well, I think at this stage it's a sort of psychological self-deception yes. rather than anything else. Yes. And you see it in the way they're trying to approach Ireland. Yes, exactly. And they think they're dealing with a small country and therefore a small country they can overpower but in fact the point of the eu is that you're actually dealing with a much bigger block than they are and this isn't just something that britain hasn't had to do since henry the eighth negotiated the divorce and the cleaves negotiate with a much much stronger power it's always been negotiating at least with rough equals or um uh or or smaller countries yeah so they're just not. They're just not good at it. They don't know how to. They don't know how to run a negotiations weak, weak party. They don't. They don't understand how to be subtle. They don't know how to put no. people up. They uh, revert to um, aggression that is ineffective when you're yeah. the when you're the weaker side. So how, how? And they don't just don't understand that. Even if the EU did actually function as they thought it did, where they could do deals all the time with the, with the um, other other big two countries, even if that were always true, and there was some element of truth in it, but not as much as uh, the Brits would like, it does, that doesn't work when you're outside. Right. And it doesn't work when all the small countries um, have a strong interest in Ireland not getting rolled over the border. Yes. Because if you start, if you roll Ireland over the Northern Irish border, you might start rolling um, Estonia over some aspect of yeah, the Russian exactly, border. Exactly, exactly. So why... why why were they not listening to you when you were telling them all this when you were a Tory <laughs> international security policy advisor? Uh, because I was I was there before that, way before that time. I did I did I did warn them about free movement of people, and uh, more importantly, um, Ivan Rogers warned them about free movement of people, yeah. and they just thought um, they listened to other people who told them that they could get it. But is there still if there's is there um, a body of thinking within the Tory Party or even within Whitehall more broadly that gets all this. Yeah, there is. Um, and there is, there is at least, I won't, I won't damn the person by naming them, but there's at least one member of the cabinet who understands this. Really? Yeah. In the cabinet? Yeah. And, and probably two or three. Yeah. And do they, do they say this to their colleagues? Or yes, they but they, but they, and there are robust debates in the Conservative Party about this at the moment. But, um, there are robust debates that occur in a situation of great strategic weakness. Yeah. Where, um, where, where the UK, um, with the possible exception of the people that you were describing, though I don't know, but the UK is not being honest with itself about itself. The UK is not being honest with its, the amount of power it has compared to the EU yes. in this negotiation. It is. That's, that's essentially, yes. and, that's, and that's always been the case, I think, actually. But um, but 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 not right now it matters because it's yes. in an adversarial exactly. negotiation. Exactly. It didn't matter so much when it was um, in the council negotiating. Uh, and it, so I, I, and they, I, were, I they, also, they were also warned about this. Uh, Open Europe, oh, yeah. Open Europe um, of, of all organisations did a war game just during the referendum hmm. campaign, and it played out exactly like the Brexit negotiations have played out. Yes. Um, adversarial. 
um, angry, recriminative. Yes. Well, see, see, see my own blog of shortly after the referendum and, and, and Steve's article, um, which he wrote shortly after the referendum. And, and indeed, the kind of advice that I was giving when I was you know, uh, eight years ago in the Foreign Office. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, um, it's not as if lots of people in London don't get this. And yet it seems to be something cultural about Whitehall and Westminster that they simply cannot be honest with themselves collectively about their strengths, their weaknesses. Well, their, their eyes, they're too weak domestically and their eyes are on domestic politics because yeah. that's the priority for their own survival. And domestic, domestic politics occurs in a country that um, hasn't informed itself about this organisation it was a member of and is now leaving. So it just gets things wrong. And the media frequently misinform people. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the old um, financial financial currency trading tr- trading um, tip. Yeah. Uh, you 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 buy on the um, story in the Times on the Monday, and you sell when T- Tony Connolly explains it's nonsense on Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. I should, I should do that. Get, get rich. Yeah. This so, is because um, the ti- you know the, yeah. the Times take. British government briefing as if it's true. We really need to get Bruno on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not even just Bruno. No, I know it's not. I mean, I, I well, look, I'm, I'm not going to speak. For him, I mean, you can even, you can even, you can probably at a at a slightly higher level of subtlety play this game with the London and Brussels bureaus of the FT. Yeah, yeah. The London bureau will say such and such a thing is happening. Because the government says it, and then well, it's just that super London blindness, that London, that you know, the, the glare of London, um, and it's sort of it's also naivety of thinking that well, yeah. the government's saying it in a matter of international relations, it must be true, yeah. but they should know by now it's not. Listen, Gordon, when we were when, when we were um, talking about how we were going to um, do the podcast today, um, we were talking through some of the issues that we wanted to cover, and um, you wrote to me. I'd like to talk about picking up on this issue that we've just been discussing, um, the silver lining of Brexit for the EU and why the EU, um, you know, maybe what, maybe the EU, given the way things have gone over the last year or, t- year or two, maybe the EU wouldn't be super excited if the UK suddenly changed its mind and asked to stay. Uh, and we won't get into the we won't get into the logistics of whether Article Fifty can be revoked or whether it would require unanimity of the member states, and if so, whether that would be often. And we've discussed that all on the podcast before. But let's let's assume for a second that um, the UK in this scenario, the UK says we would like to stay in the in in the EU. We've changed our mind. We we we, we we're backing down. Let, let let us back in. How? How would the EU respond? And you wrote to me, I'm kind of Austrian school of Brexit. I think the UK has to understand what it's like on the outside, not try and get out of jail free and return to be a member of the awkward squad. (laughs) So tell us first of all, what do you mean by Austrian school? And that's that's a, uh, sorry for all those mixed metaphors. (laughs) The Austrian school uh, is a school of economics. And the, the, uh, the idea comes from an Austrian economist called Josef Schumpeter. And his argument was that recessions happen because people have made mistakes and they put they allocated factors of production, so capital and and labor essentially in the wrong places. And as a result, 
um, it suddenly turns out that um, what we thought was valuable turns out not to be valuable. And the only way to get the economy going again is to essentially accept, to process those losses and accept them. Hmm. And when you have processed those losses and suffered and accepted that that value is no longer there, you can then start thinking about how to make money again. Mm -hmm. And um, so he, he was deeply critical of um, people like Keynes who thought that um, in a recession, what you needed to do was to stimulate the economy mm -hmm. to, um, uh, you know, borrow, borrow money, pay people um, to build infrastructure, or if that wasn't enough, just pay people to dig holes in the ground and fill them up again. It didn't matter. What Keynes wanted to do was put money in people's pockets so that they could go out and spend it, and that would then have a positive effect on the economy. Um, Whereas the Austrian school is all about cleansing by fire. I'm not cleansing by fire. I just kind of cl cleansing, cleansing just by by time and purpose. by suffering, by, by, by suffering, human but suffering, by suffering. But it's not, it's not, it's not a sort of intense uh, combative cleansing of fire. It's more like a long hangover that you just have to get through. It's like like the, no magic like, the like the economic like the economic revival of the 14th century after the Black Death. I wouldn't make such a comparison. No. Okay. All right. This, anyway, this, is, this, is again, this is again saying that that, that guy said there was something positive in the Black Death that led to um, the economic revival. And, and and as a matter of economics, there are actually some recessions where the Keynesian story is right and other ones where the Austrian story is right. But anyway, which um, is ter terribly boring. And as Harry Truman said, will someone please give me a one-handed economist? <laughs> anyway, listen. Okay. Uh, look. So anyway, the point here being that... Um, you, you are somebody who I'm putting words in your mouth, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But you're somebody who would say, "Look, um, if if we did reverse Brexit, if if we if we remain as one, our point, if we had a people's vote, um, and which I think we both agree is the only way in which we even stand a chance of stopping this thing, and if in the people's vote there were um, a, a result which led to the UK withdrawing Article 50 and effect, effectively remaining on current terms." Um, that would be a bad thing for Europe and probably also a bad thing for the UK politically. Is yeah, I think, I think it would be a bad thing for both places. Yeah. Because if there was such a uh, referendum, it would only win if it won 51-49 or 52-48 again. The divisions in the country are deeper and permanent. You're not seeing 60 to 70% of people saying, actually, you know what, Brexit was a mistake, let's not do it. If you study opinion polls, you find that... Um, more people have switched from remain to leave than leave to remain. What's happened as well, though, is people who didn't vote in 2016, either because they were too young or because they thought it was all in the bag and didn't need to, um, are saying they would vote now, and those people would just support vote remain. That's what's dealing. That's what's creating the shift uh, in, in total numbers. All right, but let's, so you, okay. so you st first of all, for Britain's sake, you still have a completely divided country, no matter what, mm -hmm. and. But you have a complete divided country that isn't about to suffer horrible economic carnage. You, but this is this is indeed the problem. What would you do as a British politician then? You would say, okay, this shows this shows that like many other people in the rest of Europe, we have a significant problem with the way the European Union is going. We need to reform it. And what we really mean by reform, of course, is we mean um, change um, the immigration yeah, rules. They mean remove yeah. free movement of people. And that's very, very dangerous for the European Union because there are a few people still in the Netherlands or in Sweden 
who might be willing to contemplate that. Yeah. Um, and those people and Marine Le Pen would yeah. be emboldened by that kind of policy. Yeah. Um, but the people who would oppose it, of course, are everyone in the East and the South, yeah. as well as pro-Europeans. Yeah. Right. So you, cre- you create a new fissure. You create a conflict between people who um, want to keep the four freedoms as they have been since the Treaty of Rome. Yeah. And some and people who want to create a new kind of idea, which is some sort of European Union that greatly benefits um, capital, yeah. but at the cost of people's lives and people's ability to move around the continent. Yeah. And this would be a very cold European Union. Mm. It would um, eliminate the idea of mingling of peoples, which was so important to the vision yes. of breaking down the barriers between nations that had... Um, been created, and it could even split the European Union into um, antagonistic factions based on whether they received or sent people around the block. Okay, and beyond freedom of movement, um, that would be the first thing. Yeah. Secondly, there's the we've already seen how, including much to my shame, my own party, we've already seen how um, they have been willing to support the emerging autocrats mm-hmm. in the weak democracies of. Um, Hungary, Hungary and Poland. Yeah. We saw how Tory MEPs, uh, with a couple of honourable ex- exceptions, yeah. voted um, against the invocation of Article Seven. Yeah. We saw how they were whipped to do so. Yeah. Um, this is this is um, not what Margaret Thatcher would have wanted. I no. wrote that it betrayed her legacy. She stood for democracy in Eastern Eastern Europe. She also stood for uh, the rule of law, and she stood for not wasting European taxpayers' money. Yet this is exactly what Orban does and exactly what um, the Polish government hopes to do. They are <clears throat> taking large amounts of Euro- European taxpayers' money and they're spending them on vanity products and ho- projects, in Hungary's case, even on propaganda yeah. um, against um, George Soros and Giverhofstadt and other people. Now, obviously, the Tory party institutionally is quite happy to engage in propaganda against Giverhofstadt. It just doesn't think it should use taxpayers' money for the purpose. Hmm. Well, le- le- leaving aside the whole issue of whether um, um, whether Thatcher would have been um, uh, a defender of the rule of law when it comes to um, Orban and Kaczynski as opposed to um, Jaruzelski and whoever it was in charge of Hungary at the time, I can't remember. I mean, I, 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 we'll leave that. That's a kind of words that we should probably leave unopened. But... Um, I think it, you know I, ha- I have to say that I find that a quite a cogent line of thinking. I have to say, I mean, as a European Federalist, no, I don't think you're a European Federalist, are you? Uh, no. I haven't, I haven't come to a view on that. Okay, well, um, which is in any case a separate question of whether the UK should be in that organisation. Sure. Um, Regardless, I mean, you don't have to be a Federalist to th- think that. European cooperation is is probably going to be healthier without the UK. At the same time, and we discussed that earlier, especially in the area of foreign policy, for example. At the same time, there's also a school of thought which is that, and this is perhaps more your Austrian school of thought, there's a school of thought that the UK needs some kind of experience experience that it's going to prompt reform whether it's concrete political reform reform of political structures and institutions or whether it's 
a sobering reform of its post-war collective mentality. One way or another, it can't carry on as it has been. It needs to wake up and smell the coffee. And withdrawing Article 50 and rejoining the EU could mask that. I mean, you, we were talking earlier. We, 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 well, the, we, I mean, the, 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 I mean, Britain's deal in the EU is already a whole set of extra deal, extra worst cake, yeah. um, special arrangements, <clears throat> special favours that have been bestowed upon it to placate um, the eccentric beast to the northwest. And it's already got it's already got rebates. It's got opt outs. Mm. It's got lots of um, it's it's got lots of things, and there are, there are people who consider themselves remainers, um, whose main task is to find a kind of EU that Britain can live with. Mm. Nick Clegg even wrote something almost yeah. word for word for yeah. that in his book, How to Stop Brexit. Yeah. His answer was, well, the EU should change so that yeah. Britain yeah. can accept it. Yeah. Yeah. And this <laughs> yeah. um, seems, Nick, to be, seems to be the wrong attitude. Yeah. If, the, if, the, what, if the EU is not what Britain wants it to be, that's okay. Britain can go and do its own thing. It will be disruptive, but in the end, Britain will find its own way to be comfortable with itself. Yeah. There's no iron law of geopolitics that requires Britain to be in the EU. And if it, if it can't have, if it doesn't have it within itself to be an EU member state and actually be in favor of being in the EU, then it shouldn't be in there yeah. for its own sake and for the EU's sake. And um, this is slightly separate. That's, that's a slightly separate argument to the idea that the truth is that Britain should be a fully signed up member of the EU and that, the only way it can do that is by suffering outside and understanding what it's like to be out in the cold, and then it'll actually come back in to the um, cruel but stern stepfather of the commission. <laughs> the prodigal son returns, and we will kill the fatted calf. In other words, but the prodigal son never, 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 never. The, pro the prodigal son analogy is with is what Mandelson Clegg want, which is yeah. Britain comes back, kill the fatted calf anyway, despite not having changed his behaviour yeah. at all. Yeah, this is this is this is more you know the it's a more sort of morality tale of yeah. someone's gone out and come back and um, le le learned his lesson and yeah. um, pays obeisance to the gods having um, having spurned them. Yes, um, yeah, and that isn't that isn't a very attractive no. um, case for the EU. You know, if yeah. if Britain really does genuinely decide actually European integration is a good idea because we should be breaking down barriers mm. between countries because having a big single market including people is, is a good thing because having predictable um, economic regulation is sensible because having a common foreign security policy really is a good idea. And because this keeps our continent wealthier and more secure, then good, then it should rejoin. Mm. But if it, if it thinks, oh, well, well, we're only going in because being out is worse. Mm. Well, no, it needs to actually believe in the thing it's joining if it wants to rejoin. And so far, none of the, you know, stop Brexit or um, pro-Remain campaigns have made this argument. They've all tried to say, they've tried to stick with the line used in the Remain campaign, which was, it's a bit rubbish, but if we get in, we'll make it better. Well, so no, hang on a second. I mean, I don't quite agree with you there. I think that you're correct in that a lot of the loudest voices, especially the more... Um, um, uh, 
establishment voices for Remain have, 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 have been like that. But I mean, certainly if you look at grassroots campaigners, I think that, that what's been really transformed over the last couple of years is the, is the understanding of an appetite for an emotional case for Europe. Uh, so, I mean, I think I, 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 mean, I challenge I think, that. I think, I think that, that emotional case is there and there are probably, you know, 25% of people who might, well, feel pull, it. Pull a finger. Out. Pull, no, but pull, I remember pull I'm pull looking, out, yeah. looking at polling, but it's yeah. you know, it's it, it exists it's, as a phenomenon, yeah. and you're seeing a new generation of people who are identifying with the European cause that they haven't done beforehand. Yes, um, a lot of them are doing it just because they hate Brexit. They don't really understand the EU yeah, either. Correct. But it's become a tri- tri- tribal focus of identity, and for a future campaign that wants Britain to join the EU, those people will be very, very important. Yes, and the arguments they will make over the next. 15 or 20 years yes. will be very, very important. Yes. Um, and in that sense, combined with other democratic change, it might or might not. We don't know where the future is going to go, but that might lead to the transformation of the UK into the kind of country that could be happy as a member of the EU. Yes. But, um, but, in, but in order to, for that to happen, it might have to be outside the EU for a bit, not in the sense of being outside the EU being terrible and cold, but just processes just have to take their time. And the generation that the uniquely Eurosceptic generation that grew up in the 50s um, will no longer be as influential as it no, once was. Again, do, it, do we really believe that it's purely generational thing? It's not purely, but it is significantly generational. Look, I mean, look, I, I, I find that a very cogent line of thinking. And um, I had a really interesting discussion with... Um, our friend John Worth, John Worth, um, that many listeners will, will, you'll know John. We actually, we need to get him on as well, actually. John, John, um, is a blogger and, uh, an expert on, on the EU and he, he, um, moved to Berlin a couple of years ago and he's, shipped, shipped out. But anyway. And he's, and he's, um, he's trying to stand to become a, a green, green uh, German MEP. Green German MEP, absolutely. So, um, John, John and I had an interesting discussion prior to the referendum about whether a European, um, a pro-European, um, and we're both very much pro-European activists, that's how we got to know each other, whether a pro-European should actually vote leave. And at one point, John wrote a blog post where he said he would, he, th- he thought we should. And I wrote an, a blog post myself where I, I, I thought long and hard about it and eventually decided that no, I didn't know. I, I couldn't possibly bring myself to vote leave because it was for all the wrong reasons nevertheless i found myself looking back at that post again today uh, and thinking about what what i want and i find that i am very much torn actually i i find myself torn because i i think that there is truth in what you say i do i really do i, I think that it there is enormous risks for both the uk and the eu if if this entire process were to end with the UK staying in, actually, and yet you know what, I'm 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 I'm, I'm British, and I I have I have interests in Britain, I have emotional connections to Britain, and I feel very strongly and viscerally that the UK is part of the European mainstream and should be part of the European mainstream, and I. I I am an emotional Remainer. I think with my head, I might not be actually. Um, but I think, you know, with my heart, I'm, I, I, I can't let this fight go. I have to, I have to try and stop this. 
But I mean, it's an interesting, it is a very interesting thought experiment. And, and, and there is definitely part of me, and I, I don't know how I feel about this, but there is definitely a part of me that you know, would, would say, you know what, okay, so be it. Let's, you know, this is, this is something that we're going to have to go through. Well, I mean, it, it may be a choice between whether you want Brexit to survive or whether you want Brexitism to survive. And by Brexitism, <laughs> yes, good. very good. Yeah. And by Brexitism, I mean um, nationalism, hostility to immigration, but you think selfish idea that? of international um, cooperation. And even if Brexit doesn't kill it, reversing Brexit may keep it alive. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And I think it's possible to have a Brexited Britain that isn't in the thrall to Brexitism. Yeah. But I'm not sure the other the reverse is possible. That's a very um, that's a good point. You know, in, or, in, order, like in order to w- in order to win the battle for liberalism and liberal principles in the UK, Brexit may be necessary now. Jesus, uh, uh, the listeners are going to hate this. We'll, we'll be losing them by the drove. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. Cake watch the pro league podcast. <laughs> Steve's going to be like, "What the fuck did you do to the podcast?" <laughs> Uh, we'd say this to Steve for months. <laughs> oh wow! That's I mean, there's other other things will happen as well. You know, if you're since we're in, since we're just going to look at the implications of everything, no holes barred. <laughs> um, which is one of the nice things of being a businessman. Actually, you don't really have to care so much about positioning. Um, you know, Brexit on bad terms and. The only terms available now seem to be the terms of a colony or chaos. Yeah. Um, is going to be, um, it's going to make it very difficult for the UK to survive in a form that we know it. Hmm. Um, the economic damage that would result from it would very strongly favor, um, Scottish independence. Mm hmm. And they would also, um, unfortunately, from my perspective, significantly increases the chance of constitutional change in Northern Ireland. Unfortunately, from my yeah. perspective. I, I don't want to see a United Ireland. Because you think that that I, would I think, be an albatross around the neck of I think, the I think it would be Ireland's Brexit. You know, Ireland wouldn't understand how to suddenly deal with a million people that didn't want to be there. It would be a loyalist like, terrorism. Uh, general unification uh, in some senses. Yes, in some senses, but also yeah. w- with, I mean, I, you know, with an active, it would be German reunification if there had also been a, an active communist state next door to which lots of Germans actually adhered and believed they wanted to be part of. Well, I mean, you say that, but what I remember very clearly. But just uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a successful, there wasn't a communist state around. Yeah, but hang on. There wasn't, in but. That's true, but there was, um, there were, well, there was this former imperial power that was failing and fading about which a certain minority in East Germany had great nostalgic feelings. So I remember very clearly, for example, um, so when, when, when reunification happened, um, a lot of West German towns and villages and communities twinned with uh, East German towns and communities. And the town with which, or the village with which my, my, my family's village twinned was in Thuringen, in Thuringia, uh, in Thuringia. Turian. And it was, um, and I remember very clearly having this conversation with um, 
with 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 somebody from from that Chiringian village who was very bitter about what had happened and and um, very nostalgic for the, the GDR and and um, and there, there's a strong there's a strong vein of that in in um, in, in in East German. I think in East German culture still, and that that's that. that there's but your with, with, but, with, but, but it's it's it, with um with the loyalist community. It's much, it'll be much stronger. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the yeah. country is much bigger. The country will yeah. still be yeah. there. Um, yeah. and you know the society of the Republic of Ireland has no way of coping with yeah. that. It's been yeah. a pretty homogenous. Yeah. It's been a pretty homogenous state yeah. for a very very long time. Yeah, and. Yeah. De- having to deal with what would essentially be a major ethnic minority, yeah, um, yeah, would be very, very, God. very hard. Okay, so there's um, another thing that we don't want to wish for. Okay. So that's mm. another thing we don't want to wish for. Um, okay, mm. but you know, so how the, you know, what the United Kingdom becomes mm. after Brexit is another is, well, is, an, is another question. I mean, if if you want to keep the United Kingdom together, and if someone actually wanted to do this. They would need. They would need to be talking about a form of compromise that would keep everyone unhappy. Mm. Um, it's the tradition of compromise isn't absent from British political history. Queen Elizabeth I did it with the religious settlement, and it lasted. Well, it lasted sixty years. What burning all those Catholics? She didn't burn all the Catholics. That. <laughs> See, this she is, did burn some of them. A few, but everyone was burning Catholics at the time. <laughs> And Protestants, <laughs> but she nevertheless fashioned a religious compromise that was not fair, you know, between Catholics and Protestants. But it it was it didn't accept the um, demands of either side, and it created a certain amount of. And all, all we had after that was the civil war and the Jacobite well, rebellion. But, that, but, that's, but, the, but, the, but that's when the compromise <laughs> broke down. Later. Okay, all right. But it, you know, it, la- it lasted. It lasted for her reign. Okay. <laughs> And the, the the equivalent is some kind of Norway style of Brexit. Be Norway plus the customs union. It solves the problem of Northern Ireland. It keeps everyone unhappy because neither um, because neither Remainer like it because it would make Britain essentially largely a rule taker. Oh, we'd be a colony, yeah. Um, and Libras don't like it because we haven't properly left yet. But I mean, so. So you were talking earlier. We so were talking. It's, it's and that, but that would keep the economy more or less. But this is the, it, would, it, it would keep continue. Britain. It would keep Britain in a position of sufficient, sufficient remoteness where it wouldn't be able to. Yeah, but you, what you, you with your Austrian school, you don't get that cleansing fire. You don't get that. They never said it was cleansing fire. No, no, you was, know, I, I did. I put that yeah, word. No, in it's a, a deliberately different. It's, yeah, but. Okay, so we were talking before we went out. We, we, we were eating and we were having a bit of a chat, and we were talking about. But what, um, I, what I'm objecting to is. What I'm objecting to is Britain getting back in on the same terms as if nothing has happened. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here, people will hear the fact that they're unhappy with the scenario emotionally will be important, even though rationally and economically things will just about work. Okay. Hold that thought. I yes. My, so where I was going was down a slightly different chain of thought, um, train of thought, which was um, we were talking at dinner about um, the UK's Indian summer from um, roughly the mid nineties through to um, 2010. 2016. 
2016? No. Anyway, the point being that um, I, I I was arguing that the... Well, it was 1997-2008, it's only 11 years, it's not very long. Well, it's not very long, exactly. But it was, it, was, um, it was a period where, you know, of Cool Britannia and where the city was thriving. Now, I, I, I guess I would argue that uh, one of the reasons for that was that the UK's EU membership brought prosperity and masked many of the underlying problems because the UK was outsourcing a lot of its key economic decisions to the EU. And isn't that I exactly... That was my point of dinner, not yours. I'm pinching. <laughs> uh, I agree with you. <laughs> and wouldn't a Norway solution effectively just simply do the same thing? So we're not going to get the, um, the structural renewal... That we yeah, but on the other hand, it would work because <laughs> it would outsource all the decisions to and, uh, to a more um, you know more effective, effective, and if you like, well governed, technocratic, and well governed um, system. I mean, one of, one of the biggest canards of this whole process is the idea that the reason we're having all these problems is because government is too distant from the people. <laughs> it's actually the reverse. Yeah, because when because. Government is trying a government that tries to respond to people's wishes finds it very difficult when people disagree, and we're, we're, we've got very complex societies with vast diversity of opinion, and um, populists to come along and say, "Well, the people who agree with me want X." There, there is a, another massive tangent down which we could hurl ourselves, um, where we discuss what precisely government close to the people means. Um, and that then leads into me on uh, going into my federalism rant. But, so let's not do that because <laughs> we don't have time. But that's an interesting, interesting point. An interesting, um, yeah. The, so th- this entire process has simply been a validation of technocracy. Technocratic yeah, a validation rule, of mixed rules. government. <laughs> yeah. Look, let, let, this goes. This you know this 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 argument goes back to the Peloponnesian War, but. It's, <laughs> It's exactly the same argument. Um, the, the Athenians decided that um, that they should massacre the, no, the population of Mytilene. Well, then, then they, they went on this big dominant war. They thought they were going to win. The Spartans went, hold on, hold on, too much. And the Athenians overreached. Yes. And their allies got very angry because they weren't really being treated seriously. And the Spartans came in one, and they installed the thirty technocrats. Let's call them. We should do. It. We should. We should definitely do a, 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 a podcast about Thucydides because um, I um, and I know exactly who we need to get on for that, which is uh, our friend Katie Lowe. Do you know Katie? No. Ah, I'll introduce you. Anyway, um, do you know what? Oh. You know, on, on podcast brainwave, definitely getting Katie. In, in, in bring, and bring in, I mean, it's the same, it's the same, same kind of argument that Polybius made, and then Machiavelli, particularly. Well, I have a problem made. with I have a problem, which is that I um, I read um, the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides as part of my degree, and um, thought it was the most um, incredible thing. Uh, I, I, it was an amazing piece of writing and history, and it, it was fascinating. And I have greatly objected to the way in which it's been co-opted by uh, neocons 
and the right wing as being somehow directly applicable to modern society and it, it basically you can draw the lessons from it that you wish to that you wish to draw and it works equally well if you if you if you if you're on the left as, as if you're on the right and you and that's the always... secret to getting your book into the canon is to give everybody something they yes. can take out of it there you go anyway um look we still have our lie of the week to do i think we should do that now yeah. Uh, not least because I suspect we're also going to spend quite a long time talking about the lie of the week. <laughs> so why don't we do the lie of the week? Um, this is where normally we'd be cutting in the music. I don't know if we're going to be able to, so let's sing it. Lie of the week. Yeah, fucking lie. Okay. okay. Go. Um, yeah, and for the lie of the week um, is the backstop. <laughs> And it's about the inability to understand um, English, despite these people having lived in England all their lives. Um, it's now the purpose of the backstop, as everyone knows, and as the UK signed up to in December last year and in March this year, was to ensure that whatever way everything else came out, Northern Ireland would have such rules that aligned with those that happened in the Republic of Ireland. You can argue about whether this is a, um, was a sensible concession to make or whether it's a concession that um, a sovereign state should make, but it was nevertheless a concession they didn't make. And it's also a concession that's quite popular in Northern Ireland itself, even among unionist voters. Uh, there have been several polls that have... Um, reinforce that. But what the backstop isn't, by definition, is something you can pull out of mm. halfway through. And it's not something that you can um, replace with a customs union that you then leave. Mm -hmm. A permanent customs union will replace most of it, but then you'd leave the customs union, the backstop will still have to be there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of reverse macavity. The backstop is always there when you take everything else. Um, and we take everything else away. It is, it is the, and it is the condition that the EU and Ireland have put down on a withdrawal agreement. Mm. And they've done that because this was part of what Britain said it was doing. Mm. And Ireland doesn't have the power to stop a hard border going up, mm. or it does have the power to refuse legitimacy to any lack of agreement that leads to a hard border going up mm. and impose. And so the EU's position, at least of last week, was to hope that the costs of no deal would be so tremendously awful, particularly because Britain has been unable to prepare for them properly because of its own divisions, that they would force the UK to accept it, even, even though it would be very unpalatable. Mm. Uh, this this just shows a misunderstanding of nationalism, and the UK is more likely to um, the, the UK is more likely to, or at least leavers in the UK are going to rebel against the idea of having the backstop imposed on them mm. and blame the EU for it. While Remainers will say it's a terribly good idea and why didn't we do it anyway? And the government is being foolish by allowing this. But at the moment, opinion in the Conservative Party, even among people who are very prominent in the Remain campaign is that the backstop is intolerable. Okay. The problem is the government promised to do it. Yes. So, you know, whether it's tolerable or not, yeah. that's not the point. You, you made a commitment. You made a promise. 
to say you made a promise and it was that promise that unlocked the talks in the future uh, future partnership although otherwise there'd be no deal yeah that's that so so the issue here isn't really about whether or not the backstop is tolerable the issue here is whether or not the uk can be trusted and clearly it can't be trusted this is I mean, the UK's national uh, national reputation is a perfidious Albion. So, so they're 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 playing into the, they're playing into everyone's stereotype about them. Yeah, without yeah. realizing that's what their stereotype well, is. Exactly, exactly. Now, look, um, look, as it happens, Jonathan Liss um, has written an absolutely terrific opinion piece in the Guardian today um, that I'm just pulling out. Um, it's called Britain's arrogant attempts to hoodwink the EU have sacrificed all trust. Now, I mean, this is. The, any, anybody listening to this podcast who's, who it, it, this isn't going to be surprising or news to it. It's very well written, it, beautifully. Well, you know, now that I've got all your new Leave voting listeners, <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, guys, you're not going to believe this, but <laughs> um, it's a really good piece. I will try to remember to put it into the episode notes. Um, it, it, um, it's an extremely good piece, which which precisely nails this point, which is that as so many of us said. Um, very early on in the process, this is all about being honest with yourself. It's about being honest with your partners. It's about understanding your, your limits. It's about um, being very careful to um, spend goodwill very, very, very sparingly. It's about being able to be trusted. And they've done exactly the opposite of all those things. Um, and that means that what's happening with the backstop is that from a position where we already were very short on goodwill and trust, we are now, uh, we now with my UK hat on, we the UK are now doubling down on all those stereotypes of the UK as an arrogant exceptionalist partner not to be trusted by trying to pretend that this deal that it had promised to do or this, this, this backstop that it had promised to do in December now that now they're saying, well, hang on a minute, we didn't understand what it meant. What? Well, of course you understood what it meant. Don't tell us that. We know perfectly well that you. Everybody knows that the, you understood what a backstop meant. Don't tell us suddenly that a backstop isn't a backstop. You know what a backstop is. So this is this is the lie. It's the lie, lie of the week. It's the lie of the year. It's lie. It's it's the lie of the entire process. The Irish border has always been the ultimate example of cakeism, and 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 the, the Irish backstop. Even calling it the Irish backstop is an insult. Frankly, it's a British backstop. Um, and this attempt to walk back on it is entrenching anger, uh, hostility. On uh, it, it, it's it's a very it's a very very dangerous game that that, that the UK can only lose. Yes. <laughs> so um, and but the UK doesn't understand that the EU is serious about. This they think it's a negotiating tactic. Again, I think the people in the cabinet who understand that they are serious, um, and but the UP, of course, know that um, the ultimate sort of triple cross in this game is if the UK government signs up to a backstop or signs up to a customs union with the Northern Ireland backstop in it, that then five years down the line when the DUP are not in government, it can decide to leave and leave the DUP with the backstop in a part of the United Kingdom that suddenly finds itself economically aligned with the EU and the Republic of Ireland and away and diverging from, from Great Britain. 
Mm. That's the big DUP fear, is that in the end, the people of England don't really care about them, Mm. and they'll be sold down the river. Mm. And it's a big fear that they have because... It's essentially true. true. Yeah, exactly, because it's a perfectly reasonable and realistic and, and rational fear to have, yeah. No, I mean, because because Bre- Brexit's an English nationalist project, as Fintan yes. O'Toole always says. Yes. Um, but the, the other problem is that you know, the, 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 the government in London, in a sense, doesn't mind which way this goes out, as long as they can stop the DUP voting against them in the next... Right. But the problem is that, the problem is that this, that, 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 that game... The, 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 this, the gaming of this by the, by the British government is predicated upon um, the EU side being ready to play the usual Brussels game of finding a form of words that can be um, fudged and sold. Um, and everything that the but UK that's a game, government That's a game done, that you play under the framework of EU law that provides yeah, exactly. security and assurance. And everything that the UK has done during this entire process has made it harder and harder and harder for the EU to you play know, that game. pick another British philosopher. Because we don't trust pick another English philosopher. They're in, you know, as Hobbes would say, it's a state of nature between the two. Hmm. There isn't an, there is no overarching sovereign entity setting the ground rules here. This is a pure power play between the two. There well, it is li- now. And that, and there, that, are, that, there are limited conventions of international law but it didn't around have to the be. place. It didn't have to be, and the fact that it is was always going to play to the UK's disadvantage, and the UK made it that way. Yes, because they miscalculated. Because they're the smaller party, I mean, yeah. because they didn't. Wait, because they were not honest about themselves. It's like those. those they lied. To there are those um, pictures of the little yappy dog going after yeah. the big dog that's yeah. passively ignoring it. It's yeah. a little and bit eventually, like that. The, and eventually, the big dog turns. And this is another thing they think. They think the EU is obsessed yeah. with um, Brexit yeah. every day of the week, and it's not. No, Barnier is basically given a, being given a job to take out the trash. He's Barnier the bin man. And they just want him to get on with it. Well, I had a very interesting, again, this week, a very interesting thing happened this week, which is that one of the, um, one of the German media, I, I don't even know who, but some, somewhere in the German media, um, it was reported that a deal had been reached, that the deal was done. So I had a number of Germans, both colleagues. A couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? No, it was this week. Again, because that yeah. happened at the Süddeutsche Zeitung when I was actually in yeah. uh, Tübingen. Well, uh, well, I had a German there telling me, "Look, the deal's been reached. Yeah. Deal's been reached." And I was like, "No, it hasn't." <laughs> well, maybe, didn't well maybe, maybe that's maybe it was a bit longer ago. But anyway, the point what, being, what? the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of Germans, both colleagues of mine in the in, working in the EU, yeah. and also family and friends yeah. in Germany who are not close to the thing at all, have sort of said, "Oh, I see here. I hear a deal's been done. Oh, that's good." Oh, I know it hasn't. <laughs> and what what that turned out to be was a deal had been reached at negotiator level. So, well, this is the famous... So um, Robbins and... Yeah, the um, famous Barney thing that Rob came and turned down on, yeah. that, on that Sunday mercy yeah. dash to Brussels yeah. where he sort of came and said, oh, you know what, it's all off. Yeah. We, we, we assume. That's what he did. Yeah. <sighs> Listen, you yeah. called me... Well, no, you didn't call me. You wrote, some, you, you wrote something in our text exchange which I thought we needed to talk about. The Leninist Remainers who hope to stop the whole thing but are taking a hell of a risk. <laughs> so, Leninist Remainers. Lenin had a great phrase called the worse the better. <laughs> and this is, this is the idea of your purging in fire. You need a crisis. It's um, just another version of Ram Emanuel's never let a good crisis go to waste. Hmm. And these are Remainers who see in no deal in the voting down of the withdrawal agreement, the possibility of the kind of political crisis that can create 
some kind of new arrangement that would allow Brexit to be stopped. Yeah. So in, in, in short, the people like me who have been arguing or gaming the the, 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 the next few weeks and saying, you know, what we need to do is we need to have a withdrawal agreement going to the floor of the House, being rejected, and this then precipitating a crisis that would lead either to a general election or preferably to a people's vote. And then that people's vote having the option to remain on the ballot uh, and then we winning that campaign and withdrawing Article yeah. 50 and we remain. And just as we were discussing... Just An awful lot of chains to that argument. Yes. No, no, admittedly, but it's still the only way in which you get to remain. Right? I mean, there is... I can't see any other way yeah, to remain. Yeah, if it even is... If it even, even happens, if it was possible, but that's the only way to, to, for that to be done. So, so that's what everybody backing a people's vote... Um, I mean, it, it's, it's sending your goalkeeper into the opposition box for a corner just to try and... Yeah, it's, it's uh, the last minute, yeah, everybody, everybody get in to see yeah. if they can just accidentally head one into the goal. Yeah. But yeah, and, 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 and what you're saying is that then that, that the risk there is that the better side <laughs> then runs away with the ball and scores an open... Scores yeah. An, yeah. Scores an open yeah, I mean, there's a number, there's a number, there's a number, there was like that, it's, it's the Germany-South Korea game. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is the risk. So so the risk, as you see it in that scenario, is what? That we have a no-deal Brexit? Several, there are several risks. One is that the, the vote is so late that there's no time to rearrange politics to stop, stop things. The second risk is that the EU don't think that stopping things is possible. But those aren't risks. I mean, those simply mean that it doesn't... It doesn't I mean, it doesn't... And then, but then you end up with no you end deal. Up with where you... Well, whereas but, if you'd if you'd accepted if you'd if you'd accepted the the deal, if you'd accepted the deal, but the deal, okay. So, and we are assuming in this, and this, and we are. What, what are we assuming the deal would be? Um, let's 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 assume the deal is the one that was canvassed last week. So, customs union um, plus restrictions on applying state aid and effectively single market. Not single market. It's parts of the single market without anything actually good, like having the right of establishment for your companies across the European Union. It's all the sort of regulatory super structure of the single market plus um, the um, customs union. Norway minus minus. Yeah. Uh, with Northern Ireland backstop bits too. Mm. So if it's that, um, if that happens, the transition kicks in. So you get two to three years, depending on how long that transition eventually is, um, of essentially the status quo, gradual adjustment to things. And at that point... Um, and then and then cliff edge. And then cliff edge. But in practice, there'll be the, there's, a, there's a cliff edge, but there's also a negotiating process of the future trade relationship that can happen over those three years, which the which the UK government could engage in in a coherent way or not, depending on who is the UK government. I mean, if it's Corbyn, you probably won't want a trade agreement. So you're, so you're at that's one risk. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other risk is that in, in that chaos, the government collapses, mm. no deal happens and Corbyn gets in. And that's a much more serious risk to the Western Alliance, to the future of the if British economy. You, this is you with your Tory hat on. It's me with my Tory hat, but even me with a, any, any old hat, you know, the guy, the guy um, during the Remain campaign, um, campaigned in front of a hammer and sickle flag. I have the photo because I happened to take it myself. Um, and he wasn't campaigning for remaining in the EU like his party wanted. He was giving a speech to about 200 communists in Trafalgar Square. He just wants to be out of the EU because it will 
the EU would prevent him from doing the kind of left-wing things he believes are right. So okay. there's, there's the there's the Corbyn sort of Venezuela without the sun risk. It's not me who said the Venezuela was a model. It's him. And then there's the risk that there's another referendum and Leave would win. And given that the Remain campaign after people's vote is likely to be run by the same people as it was last time. See, I don't, I don't, I must say, I do not see any of those, what you call risks as being outweighing the, the, that none of those are dissuasive for me. I mean, no, I, I would happily risk all of those things if it meant that we might get to remain. I think the only how 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 much of a chance one percent point one percent or any any well there's there's a there's a there's there's quite a cool um, tool that um, former guest of the podcast Nick Crosby um, did uh, and we had it on Twitter we discussed it on Twitter where where you enter percentage chances and there's a little decision tree and you sort of see where you end up and I think that um, I mean when I when I played the game. Um, where we ended up was um, around a 55% chance of no deal. Well, Charles Grant with, ended up accidentally as a 60% chance. I think accidentally. Of no deal. Because he said, I think it's, um, this is Charles Grant who runs the Centre for European yeah. Reform. Um, he said there would be a 50-50 chance of, no, he said an 80% chance of a deal being reached um, by the negotiators. And a 50-50 chance of it getting through Parliament. Yeah. I think he was trying to be relatively optimistic mm. at that point. But someone caught him out on the probability yeah. and calculated this meant there was a 60% chance of no deal. But I, I think that's right. I think once, once you start looking at the various scenarios... Um, I mean, I'd put it slightly higher than that. What, you, no deal? Uh, yeah, because the negotiators are unlikely to reach a deal that they know they can't get through Parliament. And at the moment... I can't see a deal that gets through Parliament. Okay. Because you not only have the ERG, who will vote against, will vote against it, you have the um, Leninist Remainers who will vote against it. So by, by, when, you, when you talk about Leninist Remainers, you're talking primarily about people in your, your own party? Primarily Conservatives, yes. So certain Conservative M- MPs Please. that you would describe as Leninist mm. Remainers? Yeah. <laughs> didn't you didn't you work for them yeah <laughs> um, I'm, isn't it refreshing having for, a Tory I've worked for very many many um, <laughs> conservatives including Liam Fox do you know he he was um, he was once my doctor my GP yeah I think but I say I think because I know that he was GP in the practice that I used to go to. Mm. I don't, don't sure remember. Him. Well, I, very I, small. I, well, he was not my. I mean, my GP was um, was somebody else. But I seem to remember him being a locum once. Oh, he um, could have been. But I might be mentioning it, and I am still alive. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway, he is. Yeah. Anyway, so there's them. Labour will vote against it on the. Ordinary, or, ordinary, yeah, they'll, they'll find some grounds. It can't fulfill the six tests because nothing will. And six tests require cake because they want the exact same benefits of the single market. 
But so you think that you think the government is likely to lose a vote in the House on um, anything on it comes it, back with on it on anything it comes back with. Lead, well, so so. I mean, I mean, I think the only thing they they could really do if they were if it was someone more skilled than Theresa May would be to just come back with Norway plus customs union, yeah, yeah. and just 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 break the whole yeah, thing up sure, that way, yeah. Um, but but I don't think that's what they're yeah, going to do. They're not going to because she's not to the pe- to the nutters. So, so what well, you're saying? She's, is, not, she's not imaginative enough to just really throw. But then, but then what? Then what? So you think a people's vote is actually very likely? No, I think then. I mean, I think they'll also try and push it as. as Sorry, well. we're calling it a people's vote. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we don't call it that anymore. But they'll they'll um, they'll keep pushing it as late as possible. Because uh, their strategy is to say, look, you've got absolutely no time. It's either this deal or no deal. So it's either a people's vote or it's uh, no deal. The, the government strategy is you either have, and they might do this in February, and it might be very, very late. The government strategy will be either you push this at the end or, um, you know, you, you, have, you have a week to go. Markets are starting to, at this point, surely, to get nervous. Oh, surely. I mean, with a week to go, no, you'll have had the big investors pulling out by then you will have had investors pull well they already are but they already are but they don't you know they're not saying this very loudly they're just making their decisions and carry, carrying on um if they make them but loud, people will be hitting if, go on their if they'll make if they make exit it, strategies they've already done it yeah. but if they'll make if they say it loudly it's because they think it'll be a threat and might change policy otherwise they'll just pack Do, up and yeah. go yeah you know quietly no yeah. no you know no company wants to say we're now letting you know, calls the local paper and says, look, we're going to fire our entire factory here. Then mm. They don't want to do that. They'll just quietly go if they want to go quietly and don't think it's an instrument to um, in, in influence policy. So they will, they might quietly announce, they might loudly announce the new um, opening of new plants in, in Slovakia, in the Slovak press, but no one in Britain will read that because yeah. it's in Slovak. So, but, 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 but then, so, the go- but the government was, is under this pressure, and on the one hand, they want to stop um, essentially the car industry because it's totemic and the Brexit debate mm. leaving or announcing it's leaving. On the other hand, they um, want to leave as little time as possible for parliamentary shenanigans, so they can just say, "Look, it's this deal or nothing." What, hap- what happens if there is no withdrawal agreement? Does the government fall? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. Um, because Tories of all stripes are so hostile to a Corbyn possibility, they could keep keep the government going. So you get the zombie May government mm, that, that doesn't have a withdrawal agreement and that simply trips over the line into um, a no-deal scenario. Yeah, which would be a long-term complete disaster for the Conservative Party. And the country. Yes. Well, whether it would be a greater disaster than a uh, swift no-deal Brexit followed by a Corbyn government. A greater or a lesser disaster? Greater or a lesser disaster, who knows? Yeah. But certainly they will think it's a well, they will at least Well, they will at least think, well, there's an immediate disaster we can stop and we'll deal with other problems later. <sighs> wow. And they might try and replace the Prime Minister in various ways and who knows how that would play out, but they wouldn't necessarily replace the government and because of the fixed term parliaments act that's now possible truly we live in a period of unbelievably incompetent government <laughs> i mean really 
Well, they're incompetent because they're completely divided. It's not that they are... But also they have absolutely no sense or vision or interest in the good of the nation. Or at least... Well, they don't. They just disagree about it. Well... There's no... What there is is there's no single dominant view of what the good of the nation is. So they're not even coherently doing something but wrong. But there are... There are... There are... There are people in the cabinet who know that this is going to be a disaster for the country. And they are... Right. Most of those are trying to find ways to mitigate the disaster and stop it. By what? By... By... by so we'll better keep Theresa May because... By, keep, by, by keeping... By trying... Most of those are on the side of negotiating some kind of deal and will support whatever the deal is. They're not trying to tip the country over the cliff. Okay. But... 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 But then, there may be other people. Going, the, but if they know that they're going, there may be to other lose, people in the cabinet who are looking looking at the next Tory leadership election and calculating that being seen to um, stand up to the horrible Brussels bullies um, will benefit them in that leadership election. Yeah. And but if, they, if, they, if, they, if you and the, and the you know the, it's then it's the classic nationalist calculation. Yeah. Blame the external enemy. Sure. Ride on the sure, so they know it's going to go to shit, but they can see that they can blame somebody else for it. And yeah. therefore, and, they can... and quite a lot of them, probably in half their brain, believe it. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Well, this is in, this is it. This yeah, is your, a your very... standard your standard round of Brexit, Cassandra from Garvin. There you go. Um, Brexit, Cassandra from Garvin. She was well placed to know what's going on in the Tory Party. I would say. I think. I think you. You know. You better place than I am. And as our listeners um, know, Cassandra was right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Cassandra was right. So not only have we now convincingly explained why we think it's better for the UK to leave than remain, we've also <laughs> convincingly explained that there is no chance of a withdrawal agreement passing the floor and that either we're in no deal, which will be catastrophic for the country, or we'll end up with the people's vote and remaining, which will also be catastrophic for the country and for the EU. <laughs> wow. What, what an exciting and encouraging and happy podcast. Steve's going to be like, what did you do? You broke the podcast. <laughs> wow. I'm really, I'm, I'm feeling really depressed. <laughs> Catharsis. That's what you need. <sighs> Cleansing fire. <laughs> Listen, we need to. Yeah. yeah, there's no happy ending here. I'm afraid. No, there is um, no, right? We we, just... um, we better go away and think about what we've well, done. There is there is a happy ending. The happy ending is the someone needs to come out and say, "Look, this is crazy. Let's have an Norway compromise." That would get through the House of Commons. Who's going to do that? Exactly. Who is going to do Nobody's it? Nobody's going to do that. But if someone did it, it would get through. But who who would that have to, person have to be? That's the question. It would have to be a member of the current government. But who then challenged the Prime Minister and successfully... I mean, how could... I mean, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah, you know. Shit. I, I, you know... <laughs> I... I... You know, I just... I can't see... I can't... I can't see Philip Hammond, for example... rallying the country in that way and saying... No! <laughs> no! <laughs> No. No, nor can I. <laughs> Column AAB46 clearly shows this to be a <laughs> positive outcome for the national wealth of the United Kingdom. 
He's not the hero we want, but he's the hero we've got. <laughs> no, that's not that's that's not going to work either. Wow. Okay. On that bombshell, should we wrap up? Yeah. Any closing thoughts, Garvin? Please try not to depress the leadership, uh, the re- uh, listenership, <laughs> listenership <laughs> any further. Yeah. Closing thoughts. Um, Where can people find you? On the on the internet. On the internet, Twitter at Garvin Walsh. All one word with an E on the end of Walsh. Yeah, and Garvin with two A's. Yeah. And the company is trdpolicy.eu. So um, I've created a little guest profile for you on the podcast website so people can can Fantastic. Um, click on that and see everything they need to see. Um, okay, hopefully we're going to be back with Steve next week um, and he will cheer us all up. Yeah. Um, and I tell you, we need we should do Thucydides. Yeah, yeah, and I need to, yeah. Yeah, that's going into the list. Yeah. We can do a sort of Greek cake watch. That's a fantastic idea. We can get some Greek cake. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm up for that. That would be really good. I know exactly who I want on podcast for that, along with your good self, of course. I think Steve's probably going to... That's probably what to do when Steve's ill. <laughs> He's not <laughs> going to be interested ill frequently? No, no, but he has... He, he, poor, poor fellow's down with a really nasty um, yeah. lurk at the moment. But um, we were talking to him just before the podcast when we were trying to get the audio yeah. to yeah, work. He was, feeling, he was look, sounding pretty blocked up. And yeah, stuff. and it didn't work. So, <laughs> Sorry, Steve. <laughs> All right, um, we're going to wrap up here. Thanks, listeners. Um, we're sorry. We're, we're, we're sorry. <laughs> Go on, thanks. Yeah, thank you. See you. Goodbye. Bye.